Thank you for checking out this episode of Christianity Still Makes Sense with Dr. Bobby Conway. This is a portion of a sermon delivered at Image Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. To hear the full message, head over to imagechurch.live and click watch. Hope you enjoy. Man, you know, last week, if you were here, I was in 1 Corinthians 11, and the title of my message was Hats Off, and it was this cryptic passage that people were not wearing their head coverings, in particular ladies, to the church, and that was a problem in that culture because ladies that didn't have their heads covered, even in the Corinthian culture, uh, would have been seen as really immodest. So it was important that in the church they were to do the same thing. Well, I found myself, you know, thinking about the poor guest that's never been to church and shows up at Image, and we're going to be talking about head coverings, and you're thinking, well, this is really inspiring. I'll be sure to come back next week, right? And so I was, you know, profoundly apologizing for how boring my message was going to be, and uh, you know, just faithfully wanted to unpack that passage. Well, I thought I'd tell you something pretty cool about what God does, and it was good for my soul. So this is a a message that I did share was really cultural, and we needed to understand that, but some churches have tried to take that and apply it even in today's culture in certain places. And I was sharing this passage that is kind of, it's interesting, and sometimes I think what happens is you go to a church and the pastor's always trying to find a way to just make you feel good and to share a message that feels good and inspiring. But I shared how that can be dangerous because, you know, you just start approaching church from a very me-centered way. Instead of learning what the Bible has to say, learning what the text has to say, and learning how to apply your life to all of it, and learning how to appreciate things, even if it doesn't relate to where you are, knowing it relates to someone else. So you want to know that it, what's encouraging is the story I'm about to share with you lets you just know that God's at work at Image Church. So a lady was making her way to the gym last week, and the gym was closed. So she felt compelled to come over and see what's going on at Image Church, and she comes in, sits down in the back, and pays attention to the service. Well, it turns out that this lady has been a Muslim for 20 years. She lived in Saudi Arabia for some of that time, and she has felt oppressed by the head covering, the hijab. She's worn that, and she's recently walking away from Islam but doesn't know where to go. So she ends up walking in here. The title of my message was Hats Off, And she's totally blown away by the message because she felt like God put it together for her to let her know it's hats off. How about that? (laughs) My wife goes and starts talking to her at the end, and she's weeping. She's she's talking to Dio, and she's weeping. Uh, She talks to me. She goes, I I cannot believe this. Like, Like, this message was for me. And I'm like, I didn't think a message like that was for anybody. Like, <laughs> right, that, that, you, you got that from me, right? I'm like, that was my emphasis last week. I'm like, t- 
today we're going to be talking about an entirely irrelevant message, but I'm just going to be faithful and show up with the passage. So what does God do? He brings a Muslim who was supposed to be at a gym, that the gym was closed, and she ends up in here. How often do you see a Muslim show up at church? And she's looking for what truth is, and she's sitting in the back weeping because of a passage which I've never taught in my entire ministry about availing, and my title was Hats Off, and it was just what she needed to hear. So all I want to say is God's at work at Image Church. He's at work in her life, and let that always be a reminder to all of us when we're working through a book of the Bible uh, that just because something doesn't relate to us doesn't mean it doesn't relate to somebody else, even if it's the most cryptic of passages, like a head covering. Thank you, Jesus, for what you did. We give you praise, and we pray, Lord, that you will help us as we continue to try to work with this precious soul that came and her journey toward figuring out who you are in a deeper way. In Jesus' name, amen. And by the way, I was like, you know, and I was like, and he, dropped, he drops this lady in here, and it's like, you know, not every pastor is an apologist who studied Islam and is, is familiar with it. So I was like, you're in a good spot, you know, we can talk about this. I'm like, this is cool. Well, many years ago, I remember hearing about a church that was meeting in a movie theater, and they took communion together, but the pastor you know, in trying to be kind of hip and cool and relevant, he ends up serving communion, and the elements that were served was cheer wine and popcorn, right? And I, I could just remember thinking about, like, man, this is, this feels sacrilegious here. It's like, I get that, like, you know, that you're trying to present something here, in a way that people you know, can relate to, but not when it comes to communion, right? Like, that's like baptizing somebody in, you know, I don't know, eggnog. I mean, you just don't do that, right? Uh, and cheer wine and popcorn was the way that they did this in the movie theater, and his point was it's not about the elements. Yeah, but you can miss the point so much sometimes that you try to be relevant that you strip it from what it means. So that's one story of approaching communion, what I think would be in a sacrilegious way. Another way would be to approach communion in a terrified way. And I think about Martin Luther, the reformer of the 16th century, when he was at Erfurt in Germany as an Augustinian monk, before he led in his first mass, he was absolutely terrified at presenting the mass because of the Catholic Church's view that it was the literal blood and flesh of Jesus. So within Roman Catholicism, when you take the elements, the bread and the wine, in communion, they believe that the priest has a special unction that allows for the elements to be morphed into blood 
and flesh, but not literally just blood and flesh, the actual blood and flesh of the historical Jesus, which I think also is reading too much into the text. In fact, the Roman Catholic Church picked this up at the Fourth Lateran Council in the 13th century, basing their beliefs on some of the early church fathers like Tertullian and Ignatius, uh, Polycarp, um, some of these different individuals. Uh, but I think that they misread these guys that talked about communion, maybe in a way that appeared to look like transubstantiation. But if you understand the context in which they were writing, they were doing apologetic work and they were refuting Gnosticism basically at the time that would say that material is bad. And what they were wanting to say is not that it literally turns into the blood and flesh of Jesus, but he really came physically. So let's not deny that as they're countering the Gnostics of the day. And I think that that puts a better perspective on that. But you can imagine Martin Luther now, you fast forward, and you're in the 16th century, and his dad is bringing in all kinds of people. He's so proud of his son. He's going to lead in his first mass. And when he's going to lead in his first mass, Martin Luther, before presenting it, I mean, he literally wanted to run. He was that freaked out about doing it because he thought, wow, like if this is my first mass and I'm about to turn the ordinary, the bread and the wine, into the body and blood of Jesus, that was terrifying. So there's another way that I think we don't want to approach communion in a way that is basically sacrilegious, but we don't want to be terrified of taking it. So what is the appropriate approach? I think that there should be an approach to communion that is sacred. And so does Paul the Apostle, and we're going to look at that today. And before we do, let me just say, you know, out of recognition that some of you might be sitting in here going, number one, I'm new to church. I don't even know what communion is, so what are you talking about, bro? Uh, let me try to give some explanation as we make our way to 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 17. There's different names that have been used for it. Communion is one name. And basically, communion uh, would just mean common union. Communion. And when you take communion, it's our common union. It's the thing that we do that unifies us together, that we can rally around in taking communion. Another term that's been used is the Lord's Supper, and that refers to Jesus leading his disciples in that supper in the upper room on the night that he was betrayed. And another term that's been used is breaking of bread. Uh, another term that's been used is the Eucharist. And today you're going to see the word Eucharisto. You won't see it, but you'll see to give thanks because Eucharist or Eucharisto means to give thanks. So when we come together and this common union, remembering the Lord's Supper, it's a time to give thanks. So those are some names of this. And in the communion, in the common union, we are then needing to think about what type of communion are we talking about? And when it comes to the type, 
I said the Roman Catholic Church go by uh, the belief system of transubstantiation. Think of the term transubstance. The substance is transformed, transubstantiation. So you have the Roman Catholics that would say that the substance is transformed into the physical body and blood of Jesus. And I don't think that that's the case. Like, that doesn't even make sense. And I know there's a John 6 passage where Jesus says, I am the bread of life, and, and I come down, whoever takes and eats of me. Jesus was not even talking about communion in John chapter 6 because communion wasn't even inaugurated yet. So he was talking about just feasting on him as a person. So we can't use that text. So it's taking things out of context. And I think that's what happened as well with the early church fathers. Then Martin Luther, in Lutheranism, there's consubstantiation. So there's transubstantiation and consubstantiation. The word con can mean to be with uh, or by or under and substance. So in the substance of the bread and the wine that Jesus is spiritually by, with, and under, right? The communion. He's with us. Now, there, you have that kind of an approach. And I have no problem believing that, you know, the presence of Jesus is with us, maybe in a special way during communion. Uh, but I think that Jesus' presence is with us always because he said, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So what does it mean for him to be with us in a special sense and in an ordinary sense? Well, I don't really know. But I do think he's pleased when we're taking communion in remembrance of him. So there is the taking of communion of transubstantiation, believing that the elements are transformed into the substance and blood and body of Jesus, and then there's communion in a consubstantiational way, which Jesus is present with us and by us and under the elements, but then there would be communion in a memorial way, which is a way that I will probably walk us through today. Now you say, why probably? Well, what if I change my mind in the middle of the tea? No, I'm just kidding. And Jesus said what? Do this in remembrance of me. So I would say, we're doing this in remembrance of him. And I like to think that he's especially present with us in this kind of a moment. So I don't have a problem seeing some form of consubstantiation. Even John Calvin, the Swiss reformer who uh, lived down the street in Geneva from Luther, who was you know, at different parts, you know, he was in Wartburg and Erfurt and uh, Leipzig. Uh, he was in Wittenberg. He was in different parts of Germany. But all that to say, Calvin also could believe in some sort of a presence taking place of Christ. Now then the question is, is I'm trying to prepare you, right? I'm trying to prepare, prepare the table here for the message uh, because I don't want to jump in on assumptions. So I'm trying to say a couple things so far, that there can be a sacrilegious way of taking communion, there can be a terrified way of taking communion, but there can be an approach that is sacred. But then I'm wanting to explain what communion is, and I'm sharing that there's some different viewpoints, that there could be transubstantiation, consubstantiation, and a memorial view. 
But now that I've said that, I also would like to say that depending upon the church you're a part of, then you might have the question, is it open communion? Is it closed communion? Or is it close communion? So now we're continuing to prepare the table. And so therefore, an open communion would be a communion that would say anybody can partake at the table. But the problem with an open communion is you can have people that are non-believers taking communion. And as you're going to see, that judgment can fall on people if they do not examine themselves before taking communion. So that could be a problem. And so I would like to set aside open communion. Now the question is, is do we leave on the table closed communion or close communion? Well, let me say what closed communion is, and then let's scoot that aside as well. Closed communion would be that only your particular church or maybe even denomination um, can take communion. So when I was in Bible college, uh, I didn't know how to pick a Bible college if my you know, life depended on it. But I ended up in one in Arkansas, and it happened to be a BMA Bible college, a Baptist Missionary Association, which was a closed communion. And so if Billy Graham would have went to a BMA church, he would have been denied communion. And I think that there's a problem on exclusivity when somebody like a Billy Graham can't have communion. Not only that, before the BMA was formed, you have to think that every Christian in the history of the church couldn't have taken communion at the BMA church. That seems to be a problem. Well, they're also known as landmarkers, and if you're familiar with landmarkism, they believe that they can trace their origin back to Christ, which I would want to set landmarkism aside as well. Now, before I get too geeked out here I should probably realize I'm borderline doing that. If my wife was in here, she'd be like, honey, you're getting a little excited. You're getting into the details. Time to come out of the weeds. Okay, I will. Let me just say one last thing. There's close communion, uh, right? So it's not an open matter. It's not a closed matter, but it is close. So that is to say, we agree on in taking communion that if you are a believer who believes that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and that communion represents his body given for you and his blood shed for you, then regardless of the denominational heritage that you are part of, you are welcome to take communion at the table. So that's the setting as we turn now to 1 Corinthians 11. Let's see what's going on in this church and try to get our hands around this on approaching communion. In chapter 11, in verse 17, he says, But in the following instructions, he says, I do not commend you. Now, remember in verse 2 of chapter 11, he says, Now I commend you. So he commends them at the beginning of the chapter, and now he doesn't commend them in the middle of the chapter. And Image Church, I would like to commend you for being commendable. But let's just keep reading, because now you're like, well, why are we commendable? Well, because you're commendable, right? And so, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Now, that's kind of a bummer, right? Like, when you do church, it's turning out that it's not for the better, it's for the worse. Now, do you ever have people you get together with, and you go, I don't know what it is, but whenever I get with those folks, it's not for the better, it's for the worse. 
Some of you might think, yeah, I just had Christmas and family was in town. And when we come together for the holidays, it's not for the better. (laughs) It's for the worse. And so we keep reading. Verse 18, for in the first place when you come together as a church, I hear that. Ah, so somebody's been, uh, you know, doing a little bit of tattletale on, hey, you know, I don't know about this Corinthian bunch, but they're pretty jacked up. They've got some problems. I just want you to know. I want you to be on the lookout. So he says, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. Now, I, I kind of want to go, well, why don't you believe it in full? Like, like perhaps what Paul's doing is he's listening, and maybe he's saying, I believe it in part because perhaps the press reports that he's getting, he's seeing through the exaggeration as a good leader, and he says, I believe it in part. I'm, I don't believe it all. And maybe he's showing wisdom. And I think that that's good. Like when we hear news about something, it's probably if somebody's traumatized, they might be exaggerating the details. So if people were in Corinth and are like, yo, Paul, I mean, things are bad over there, bro. I mean, you guys, this is going on uh, and, and this, I mean, and they're just laying it out. And so Paul's looking for the kernel of truth. He's like, I believe it in part but I'm not stupid enough to not see through the exaggeration as well. It's kind of like, you know, do you ever notice, like, I never have somebody come to the church and be a part of the church, any churches that I pastor, and they go, man, I I just got to tell you, man, I'm just so glad to be here. The last church I was in, I really made a crap scene there. And uh, I, I was a mess. I mean, I gossiped. I, I mean, I just jacked the whole place up. I'm always hearing the story of how people were hurt. You never hear someone show up and say, man, I really caused divisions in the last place, and I just need a fresh start. Or, I, 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 you know, I was a real tool. Uh, you just don't hear that. We always show up. We're the victims, right? Yeah. Like, like, that's the case, right? Or like, on the radio, I sit and I answer these calls, and many of the calls that I do... It's amazing. Like, I don't hear people call up and go, yeah, you know, my marriage is in a bad spot. I'm just a real screw up, and I got to really work on this. No, what you hear is people calling up, and it's their press report about how great they are, and then the situation that they're in. And my brain tends to go, I I believe their story in part. But I'm thinking, what would the other person say? Or what would the pastor in the church say about the person that's just come to our church that feels like they've been completely wronged, right? So because I'm aware of that, that's one of the things that actually motivates me that when I'm sharing with you guys a lot is I try to just share about my weaknesses a lot so that you can feel like I'm being objective. It's like what I said even when I left the last church where I was pastoring. I said, oh man, anything you hear, 99.9% of the things that you probably heard are true, and I can add to the list. Okay, well, that's just, I mean, I've just conceded it, right? But I said this 1% that I really would like this group of people to admit, they won't admit that, and that's a problem to me, right? So anytime you, you don't hear that, and I think Paul's in this place, he's like, I'm not hearing an objective piece, but I believe that they're onto something. Perhaps that's what he was saying. Verse 19, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Now, isn't that interesting? That's not all that encouraging, right? Like, there needs to be division among us so we can find who's, like, true from false. 
I don't think he's saying like there must be, like there's the only way to find out who is legit is to have factions. I think he's just kind of like looking for the silver lining. That even in your factions, even in your disunity, even in your struggles, the good that we can look for is the true body of Christ will stand up. And that's one of the things that I think we can be encouraged by in the culture that we're living in today. It's discouraging to hear about all these people leaving the church. It's discouraging to hear about the rupture the church is going through. But the good is this, that the real bride will stand up. Thank you for checking out this episode of Christianity Still Makes Sense. This show is just one of the many resources available to those who are doubting their Christian faith. You can also find others at ChristianityStillMakesSense.com. This is a listener-supported show, and your gift of any amount helps shows like this continue. Click on the donate link on our website. Also, catch Bobby on Pastor's Perspective, where he answers your questions. Finally, if you're watching on YouTube, be sure to click subscribe and check out our other videos on the channel. This show is sponsored by K-Wave and Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa.